You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. In a moment, Veronica will introduce our guest. And I can tell you, you want to listen on to find out what she has to say about the conversation she has with vendors about price. Every agent works differently and every agent doesn't, you know, do what they're supposed to do and don't quote what's on the agency agreement and don't have the... So that's where the frustration lies with the buyers. Then stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started... Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This week, we're picking the brains of Marnie Senior, sales agent at McGrath Coogee. Now Marnie's real estate career spanned over 20 years and she specialises in the less glamorous end of the eastern suburbs property market, and I mean that with all due respect. We're talking the southeastern suburbs, Maroubra, Matraville, Mascot, Botany and Little Bay. Marnie's a high performer and she's won a few awards in her time and was recently awarded the 10th top female sales agent in Australia, so well done on that. Thank you. We figure that she's going to have a lot of experience to better share with us as a consequence. Now, Marnie's been with McGrath now for over seven years, and it must be an interesting time there with the well-publicised board changes and management changes. I'm not sure how much she can say about that, but we'd love to get some insights, if possible, through our conversation. No pressure for the moment, however. Welcome, Marnie. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. Welcome, Marnie. Thanks for giving us your time. Really appreciate you being here. We talk about um, the whole elephant in the room is all around understanding that our emotions is really what drives us. And we think we're the riding the elephant. We think we're in control, but it's really our emotions. You talk about just, you know, some of the experience you, you know, through all your years about, you know, buyers and their emotions and, you know, how they affect their decisions. Absolutely. And that as agents, it's something that we have to read in a buyer. So a buyer will come to the property to the open home inspection and they try and refrain from giving us too much information about themselves at first. <laughs> um, second inspection, when they start bringing family members through and start <laughs> showing <giveaway>. us <laughs> that they are interested. Um, that's something as an agent we need to read and we need to read the buyer's emotions. I find once we get the buyer in that emotional state, whether that be at on auction day or prior to auction, is when we can get the best result out of the buyer. Mm-hmm. So at the moment in a changing market, I'm finding that I am closing probably 80% of deals prior to auction because I find that as soon as I have that buyer in the emotional state and they are focused on my listing and that property, I need to get an offer from them at that stage. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that you've said that, Marnie, because as a buyer's agent, we see that happening. And we call it manufacturing offers, effectively, yes. because at the end of the day, when it's a hot market, you know it's going to sell at auction, you've got loads of people all lining up, they're all fighting for it. It's much easier for an agent to go to auction, right? Absolutely. Whereas when it's a market, a transitional market or more of a normal market where every property's got at least one buyer, but usually one stronger buyer than anyone else. So what you're saying is that as an agent, you identify when you, when you identify that buyer, then, then you kick into a strategy for getting an offer. Would that be right? Absolutely. How do you do it? Absolutely. Because if we don't get that buyer in that emotional time and when they're focused on that property, we find that we, in today's market, we're missing that opportunity Mm -hmm. and we are then not selling the property. Because they're Um, going to another property for some reason. Yeah. I mean, so if I'm the emotional buyer, I'm thinking, oh, I like this place. I've come with my family. How do you get me to, I guess, encourage me to put my hand in my pocket and Make an offer. Yeah, of course. And I find the buyers that are emotional state like that and they knowing they want that property, they've highly likely missed out on something recently. Yeah. So in that situation, I find that it is easier to get an offer 
out of them if they've just missed out on another property. Mm. So it's just having a strong communication with the buyer. So I'm finding when we identify the buyer and they've been through the property, sometimes it might be just a one-off inspection, but we can read when they're emotional, they've missed out by their dialogue and conversation we're having with them. So when I'm speaking to that buyer and they've missed out on something, I do ask what address that property is and at that time, the yeah. buyer doesn't realise why we're asking that, but then I can identify the price range where they've actually missed out, see if the property was renovated, unrenovated, how it compares to my property yeah. and work out where they're in the right price range at that time as well. It also obviously gives you anchor points to have conversation with them, you know. Absolutely. In terms of framing up where yours is hopefully better. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I do, we do, we're spending, I've always spent time with my buyers anyway, yep. so even even though it's a changing market. So I do have strong relationships with my buyers. Mm. So when I do identify that and we have comparable sales around, we've already had conversation around price, I say, well, why don't you give me an offer above or around a figure? Mm. And it, it's generally because we've spoken around a figure anyway, it's within that price range. I know by that stage where my vendor's at as well. So yeah. I know we're not time wasting. I know I'm not quoting one five and the vendor wants one seven. So it's all quite direct conversation around price. So when they do make that offer, we're not mucking around with them. One of the things you spoke about there is there's a behavioural bias called opportunity cost neglect. So yes. it kind of plays into another one called loss aversion. So when someone has gone to a property, got so close, their hearts, they've already maybe picked the furniture they're going to go into that property and they've lost it. It's quite a painful experience. Absolutely. And what they would be feeling at that point is, is, oh, I need to get something else because otherwise I've missed the opportunity and the market could move. And so it is a very emotional time. Yes. So is that kind of one of the reasons why you ask that question of sometimes what what they've missed out on and to actually kind of help them to solve that pain, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then try and talk them through how they'll see themselves in this property and this property is a better property and it's got X, Y, and Z and mm-hmm. just, yeah, see the, try and talk them into that property, seeing themselves living in that property forever. And, you know, don't miss that opportunity. No, and um, look, this is interesting too. Okay, so I think there's a fine line between influencing and manipulation. Absolutely. And we will talk about that. We'll ask you a bit about that. But in this instance, we're, we're talking about a buyer that actually wants to be sold to. That's what it yes. sounds like, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, so they actually want to be influenced. And so they're, they're like, you know, they're open, open. They're come and, open. Come and influence yes. me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this is how you work that buyer. Uh, you know, what do you think about the difference between influence and manipulation? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> I cuz I feel I don't manipulate. Like mm. I think um you know, it's yeah, it is it is manipulation. I find is the buyers I'm dealing with, they are hard to manipulate. Mm. Um but what I feel is I if I know the product I'm selling and I know what is else on the market in comparison to that product, then I will push my property around where the value of price in comparison yep. to all those products that are in comparison to the one I'm selling. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to manipulate them as such as in that my property is better value. It's positioning your Positioned property. Yeah. my property better than the others. So mm. as in manipulating them personally, mm. it's, yeah, yeah, it's not, you know, I don't find that. I'm just trying to do the best thing by the property I'm selling for my vendor. Yeah. Um, and it's inter- interesting that you also mentioned that your the buyers that you're dealing with aren't easily manipulated as well. Because, you know, they're a sophisticated, we're, we're talking the eastern suburbs of Sydney, or in fact any any yes. area within sort of 10, 15K radius of Sydney's typically got your sort of, your very educated, you know, sophisticated buyer. So it would be difficult to manipulate. But I imagine that you're coming across other agents that still go down that path of trying to manipulate. I mean, yeah, do you, do and you they see still try. Yeah, they do, and they try and talk our properties down. Yeah. Um, and try and, you know, persuade them to that property. I when you say talking down with actually facts or yeah, maybe facts sort of or things that are a Marnie's bit- quoting X but she wants Y or oh, you know stuff, yeah. you know stuff. For me, I think because I'm I'm really fortunate. I have been in the industry for a long time. Yeah. I I do have quite a good reputation around pricing my properties, mm-hmm. and I know the product and I know my comparable sales and mm-hmm. I've got the facts and figures, so it's there in black and white. It's a very direct conversation with the buyer, mm-hmm. and I give them all of that as well. Mm-hmm. So it's. It's not that I'm hiding anything. If there's anything wrong with the property, we will tell the buyers. Mm. We're very direct around that. 
any special levy coming up, I will tell the buyers. Mm -hmm. I find that if you're honest and direct with the buyer and they're not finding anything out after our conversation that we haven't given them, then they're very honest and direct with making offers around where they feel comfortable with their with the value. Yeah, you spoke about there. That the first buyer was around someone who's a bit emotionally charged. Yes. How do you? The other option is the one that sits back, procrastination. I'm not going to give anything. I'm going to let this just drag out and <laughs> not tell you anything. I mean, how do you wake up that elephant? That's just sitting there, not willing to do anything. What sort of things you they're, do to encourage They're definitely it? frustrating buyers at mm. some time um, and dealing with them. And sometimes buyers like that, it takes for them to miss out on an opportunity from being secret and cagey that then they'll realise, well, this is not the way to do business. Mm-hmm. I am always saying to buyers, even if, it's, if they're not buying one of my properties, be honest to the agent. Mm. Because if you're not honest and they don't know you're interested and they're selling a property prior, then you're not going to get a phone call. Mm-hmm. You're going to miss an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I'm when I'm doing my callbacks, I'm you know I I'm spending a lot of time on callbacks. So we're not rushing callbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have left a message, I will recall them that evening. And just to step in for listeners, a callback is is Monday morning basically. It starts. That's yes. when the agents and their assistants get on the phone and start calling everybody that came through the open houses on the weekends. And you will see in a, in a slower market as we're experiencing now, many more callbacks are made. Yes, <laughs> we're chasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've always spent a lot of time and put importance in the callbacks and my buyers. So in my team, I'm structured that I will do first round callbacks. Um, and obviously we're adding notes to the database mm-hmm. around the buyers. And if they're hot buyers, they're tagged as a hot buyer. If they're a hot buyer with a property to sell, they're tagged as that. So we find I've also then got Liz who works with me as more of an associate agent as well. So Liz will do I, – I will make sure I do first-round callbacks. If I've left a message, I would do them again. Mm-hmm. From there, Liz will do 10-day callbacks, so 10 days from inspection. Buyers that are hot – and ready to buy, we will be calling them on a weekly basis about new listings. And it may not be a McGrath listing. It may be a listing with another agent. Is so we potentially talk that one down and say, look, no, no, not at all. Up. Not at all. Just to build the relationship with the buyer as well, because then they'll be a future client for us. Yeah. So that, you know, not to talk the other property down, but just to help, just to help the buyer. As much as we can. And we're often bidding for clients. We're helping them buy other properties because for me, that's the future of my business and they'll come back to me in 10 years' time when they're ready to sell that property. And that is something that certainly is a long-term focus, isn't it? You can't be just worried about this transaction, this listing, you know, this sale if you are thinking about helping a buyer who doesn't actually have something to sell. That's right. And into a property with another agent, that's a very, very long-term focus. Absolutely. You mentioned there around hot buyers and do you guys have a list of who your hot buyers are and then do you have maybe a cold buyer or just an average punter on the street or a waste of time or a dreamer? Absolutely. They're tagged in the databases, all of that. (laughs) We And because we're using the new system home pass that right. most of the McGrath agents are using. So if a buyer comes through the property and they've come through my property in the southeast, but they've also been through another property in Bronte or yep. Bondi, oh, I can see their history. Mm-hmm. So oh, buyers, beware. yeah, beware. Because <laughs> then we like, okay, well, is this buyer an investor? Look, they could be an investor, that's fine. So we will, you know, also assist them and uh, helping buying. But this some buyers just go around looking at properties on Saturday. Oh, Everyone God, loves real estate. There's so of people, do people do that on a Saturday. So we know who those buyers are. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so you've got the GPS tracker on them, I absolutely. guess. Absolutely. And you can see them popping around the serial offenders. Yes. It happens in financial advice, happens in mortgage broking, it happens in lots of industries. You know, yes. If you walk into a mortgage broker and say, look, I'm thinking about buying a property, most mortgage brokers say that's a great idea and you should go and do it because it's always a good time to buy. I think in real estate, it's also similar. If you go into a vendor and they say, look, is it a good time to sell? You're going to potentially always say, yes, it's a great time to sell. And then on the other side of the coin, you know, when the buyers walk in and they say, you know, is it a good time to buy? You know, you've got to say it's a good time to buy. How do you think that really plays out in the real estate world? Because that's a bit of a myth that happens, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it does happen. Like all of that happens. Obviously, we're trying to get a listing, so we want it now. 
and we want to get it on the market now. With that, it's all relevant to each other. So if you're buying and selling the same market, it's all relevant. It's about the changeover cost and, you know, if you're holding it for longer periods of time. It's only relevant to the where the market is sitting if it's for an investment or mainly really for an investment, to be honest. So if a buyer is thinking of buying and selling in the same market, do it now. Do it when you're ready. Um, sometimes we meet vendors that like, oh, thinking about doing in the next six months. Well, my conversation dialogue around that is do it now while the market is still okay. Mm-hmm. We don't know where the market's heading in the next six months. We don't know where interest rates are going to be in the next six, 12 months. So do it now and do it when you're actually ready to move. Yeah. Um, and then again, if an investor or a really good client of mine, I mean, I'm forever getting calls. I'm looking to invest. I'm looking to buy property in my super fund or I'm looking to do this. When is a good time to do that? And I am having conversations around that. I think you should wait. Mm. I think you should actually wait, wait and see what unfolds in the next six, 12 months. Mm. There is actually some seasonality in the Sydney market though and certainly you're, in, you're on the beaches. So in particular, someone comes to you and says, right, you know, they're coming to you in August for argument's sake and they're saying that they want to sell and buy and they're wanting advice in terms of the order in which they do that. What are you going to tell them? Yeah, definitely. So if they're coming to me now saying they want to sell in spring, I my advice would be sell on the shoulder periods when there's less stock on the market. Mm-hmm. Always in spring, there is an oversupply of stock. So which is a good time for them to really buy a property. So we will time it. So we're on the shoulder periods. We go before that spring rush and then they will be cashed up to mm-hmm. buy in the spring market. So that would be my advice to somebody like that. I would always sell before you buy, especially in today's market. It's it's the market is changing. Buyers are, you know, finding it really difficult to get finance. Um, and there is less of them that are cashed up ready to go. So And a few years ago, did you think the opposite? Yeah, absolutely. A few years ago that people could take that risk um, because we were always being able to sell property within 30 days. Mm-hmm. And our average day on market was like 20 mm-hmm. and now, you know, it's it's starting to nearly double that. Mm-hmm. So it was, you're always knowing that you could always sell a property mm-hmm. and there was always comparable sales around the value of that. And it would then be maybe five to 10% above the most recent comparable sale. And that's what was happening. It was quite scary. So, but you're always safe at a bottom figure. Whereas at the moment, that bottom figure is changing. Yeah. Um, and our comparable sales to last yourself. year to today, you, you can't use them. It's entirely different. And there is a flood of properties in some particular area. Mm-hmm. So in Maroubra at the moment, there is a lot of one-bedroom apartments. Mm-hmm. So Why to sell a one-bedroom apartment, I'm not sure, to be honest. It's just just how it is at the moment. Mm-hmm. And same with in my area in Matraville, there's a lot of freestanding houses. So when there's choice, buyers have more to look at. They're Mm. getting more fussy, then we're getting more picky and they're far and few in between. How do you then, if there's a lot on the market in a particular segment, because I do know that what happens is that you might find, like you say, there's one-bedroom apartments on the market and there might be a scarcity of twos and threes. And and so a buyer in that segment might find it really competitive. And and so buyers don't really understand. They, They see this sort of inconsistency across the market and they don't know how to read it. Or likewise with your freestanding house versus maybe a townhouse or something like mm, that, or yep. renovated house versus unrenovated, and it moves. So it, it moves, might be that this yeah. month you've got a lot of three-bedroom houses and then next month there's none. And so there's an enormous amount of luck and, and riding that way. Absolutely. Wave, so how do you then influence a buyer or get action out of a buyer in a situation where you're trying to sell something of which there is a lot of other stock? Yeah, that's most of my stock right now. It's really, really <laughs> tough. So, but what we're doing is we're acting quicker on everything. So, if a buyer's interested, we'll have them a contract within five minutes. Um, we're communicating. <laughs> they ask for it or not? Yeah, we're communicating <laughs> with them. We're giving them comparable sales. We're doing a lot of private inspections. Yeah. Mm. Buyers are time poor. So, we need to make the process as smooth and as easy for them as possible. Mm and lots of communication. So when we are doing that and we're getting back to buyers, answering their questions, giving them contracts, making the process smooth and as simple as we can, we find we're getting offers out of them. A lot of agents don't return calls. A lot of agents will not do a private inspection. A lot of agents will get a wrong contract or something to them. So it actually puts the buyer off Um, and it makes it tricky for them. 
Yeah, you mentioned there around um, a lot of your stock was that. Um, yes. You know, one of the things I know Veronica would have to deal with as a as a conflict of interest, I guess, is, you know, if she's got two buyers trying to buy the same brief, it's very difficult for her to say, well, I'm going to give it to Mary or I'm going to give it to, you know, Amy because Amy is my first customer. So there's always you've got to give it to Mary first and then she's going to have to offer it to Amy after. That's um, right, yeah. How, how does it work from a real estate agent's point of view? If you've got, you're selling five one-bedroom apartments in Maroubra, do you try to sell the best one first or do you sell the worst one first? How do you do it? I just sell whatever the, I can get a buyer on whatever property at the moment. Right. Yeah. So whatever they're showing more interest in. Is that probably, yeah, and I yeah. will sell that for the, yeah, whatever they're showing more interest in. I can't think I've had Anzac Parade on the market for longer than I've had Boyce Road on the market or mm. I just think whatever I can get them on, I need to sell that property at that time. So it's, yeah, I'd love to be able to manipulate what one I sell them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, recently I did have a situation of similar to that, that I had a property on the market for a long time. It did pass in. The vendor did have bridging finance and he had to sell the property. Yeah. I had a, a property in another suburb, different home, but for whatever reason I had, which I also couldn't sell, by the way, I had a buyer come through, two buyers come through the Saturday and this buyer in particular had been through both of these homes. So he made an offer on the one that wasn't as urgent. But I had somebody else on that as well. So I had to just take out that thinking if I don't sell him um, this property <laughs> in East Lakes, yeah. then I can sell him the property in Matraville. It did actually work out that mm. way, but it wasn't through any manipulation or any. I, I just had to go, okay, well, they both want this property in East Lakes. Whoever makes me the highest offer with the de- best yeah. terms for my vendor fair and transparency on that to both all parties, then take the other buyer to the other property. And it did work out. I sold both of them last week. And so well, well done. That, that's, you know, obviously you're doing a good job there in, in tough circumstances. How much of that second sale, so how much of taking that other buyer to the, the house where the vendor was under pressure, how much of that is because you have actually developed a relationship with that buyer versus that buyer really is suited to that property or that property is really suited to that buyer? I think it's do, it does have a lot with the communication. Mm. And it, for us, people have that wall up between agents. You know, obviously a lot of people don't like agents and they don't communicate to us as much as they should. But some of them have got reasons for that too. So I, I found that with that buyer in particular, the minute I took him back to the other property and I said, give me an offer of X that's going to buy the property, he did that. He mm. did that and it's because we had a great relationship. He trusted what I was telling him. It all, there was, it was, yeah, it just all came together really easy and quickly. There's a few things that would have helped the buyer there. Relativ- relativity is a hard word mm. to say. Yes. Um, you know, they're comparing two different properties and they're that's two right. different of your properties. Yeah. So you've given them a really easy decision as well. Uh, mm. People respond better when there's an easy decision. Yes. And so, you know, we're going to say yes if, you know, you can see why they made an offer there. What, what do you mind taking the conversation in a different direction? Yes. And around kind of personal brand and a business brand, obviously you work for McGrath's, which is a very big brand, and mm-hmm. you're also working on your own personal brand. What do you think matters more for agents? For me, I work on my personal brand um, in my area and in my marketplace. I'm fortunate to work in, alongside with McGrath brand, who I feel is strong in my area, but it's more your personal brand, I feel, mm-hmm. um, out there in the marketplace because it's me that's doing the business and me that's communicating to the buyers. So my personal brand is really important out there in the marketplace and that's something that I have been working on for the last few years in my area is my personal brand. What do you want your personal brand to kind of be within that market? Like what what are you working on, I guess? What do you want to be known as? Yeah, an honest, trustworthy agent Mm -hmm. that, yeah, because I live in the area I work as well. So Mm -hmm. that's all really important. I've got children. So I I want to be an honest agent that Mm -hmm. is known to do the best thing by their clients. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really push that, I I mean, even on my social media pages, I've got Marnie Senior People Passion Property and that's what it's about. It's about the people and communicating to the people and doing the best I can to my vendors and to my purchases as well. 
And inside McGrath at the moment, you know, it's all very public and yes. it's Australian tall poppy syndrome, a lot of it, I know my yes. personal belief is we want to cut down people who have been successful and John McGrath from an industry point of view has been in the eyes of society, has been very successful. Yes. And, you know, Shark Tank, et cetera. And as soon as they, you know, Australian seed blood, they'll they'll go for it. Yeah. Um, which I think's happened. So I'd love to know that's society, right? Yes. And what's happening behind the scenes at McGrath? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been at McGrath since 2011. I have had John McGrath as one of my mentors throughout that period. And I, I, f- I think John is absolutely amazing. He's incredible. He's 10 steps of everyone else in the industry. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for him. In my era, is really fortunate that when they did float the company, it did not affect me at all. Nothing has affected me in my marketplace, to my vendors, to my future clients. So it has affected a little bit more recent with more different articles hitting the news, which is, you know, what John does in his personal life is personal. You know, I feel that they've attacked him and they've put, you know, information out there about him, but it's personal stuff. So, but behind the scenes at McGrath's right now, we are, we have our CEO back, Jeff Lucas. He's amazing. So he's come back on board. Um, we have Adrian Bow, who mm-hmm. is also mentoring and training and coaching agents. And John McGrath is, is around, he's back. He's very, very hands-on at the moment. He's communicating with us. He's talking to us. He's there. So I feel like he's back. Mm. At one stage then there was a board of directors and he was taking a step back and he lost a little bit of, you know, his control and his way. And John has his way on everything. Um, He's very particular. He's very pedantic with his marketing. He's very (laughs) attention to detail and and he's very (laughs) innovative and he's incredible and that's why he is successful. Now, interestingly enough, so he's floated the company. Yes, you're going to lose control when, when you do that, you know. Yes. So I guess that's something that was inevitable. And now if I read the subtext here, you're, what you're saying is it, it needed him to come back and take control again in order to be steering in the right direction. Back to the personal branding, you know, from the outside looking in, well, I'm not really on the outside, I'm well and truly in the industry, okay. but as a buyer, as a yes. buyer looking into not just McGuire but the industry as a whole, and we, we, we look at this personal branding thing and it's good and bad. Yes, you've put, I think you've put forward the good idea of it being that it's about relationships, about people, it's about you and what you stand for and your personal values. On the flip side of that, the personal brand is very much about that facade, the facade of success. Yes. And I've been, you know, lo- I love listening to these podcasts and watching the videos and blah, 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 and some of it rings true and some of it doesn't. The, the stuff that does not connect with me, a lot of rah-rah, and there's a hell of a lot of rah-rah in real estate land. And what I see in terms of the breakaway and some of the devastation, I guess, that McGrath as an organisation or as a company has experienced is that you've got some very, very strong personal brands that have gone off, hived off and done their own thing. Mm. Now, that might be good or bad. Yes. But that's obviously a consequence of this personal brand. But what I'm seeing is there's more and more of it out there at the moment. How do you, I mean, what are your thoughts on that as a, as a practitioner in this market? Yeah, it, it's a lot. A lot of people, as you said, and a lot of people are branding themselves under another brand. Basically, that's what they're doing, mm-hmm. and a lot of business owners are encouraging that now because they need to keep their staff and they need to keep everybody happy. And you know, at McGrath's, so, we sorry, have. Can I cut in there? Yes. So, what are you saying? Is that it's actually driven by the agents themselves, and in in an effort for the organisation, say for the agency, to maintain or keep these people on board? Are you saying that that's what's driving that? Yeah, look, I think that people like myself that you, I mean, I, with my personal branding, it is aligned with McGrath's branding as well. So we do have guidelines. I can't just go out there and do what I want (laughs) and when I want. So we have Mm. guidelines and I do align myself with McGrath's because of their brand as well. Um, But I know other um, agencies allow personal branding as well under their brand and it's encouraging because they're encouraging it and, and allowing it to happen is because they don't want to lose me or they don't want to lose a staff member to go and open up Marnie Senior yep. 
real yeah. estate. Mm. And, you know, for me to go and open up Marnie Senior Real Estate, there's fit-out costs, there's systems costs, there's structure, there's so much to it than what people actually realise. Oh, yeah. yeah. oh, yeah. And, you know, so they're allowing us a little bit of flexibility around branding ourselves. Yeah, because some years because ago of that. I wouldn't have been able to get you in here. No, you know, for this podcast because no, there that's was very right. Strict controls over there what was, our agents could and couldn't we say. We were had very strict controls over what we could and couldn't do. Mm. So obviously, they don't want to lose staff and they want to retain and keep people happy. And people, we as agents, want to be able to do our own little thing here and there and and brand ourselves out there in the marketplace as well. So they have allowed us a little bit of flexibility around that, which is incredible because I don't want to lose us. And other um, big companies are the same. You know, I know a lot of real estate agent owners that allow their staff to also brand themselves as well. And it's because they want to retain you and they don't want me to go on up and money senior real estate in the southeast. So I'm really running my business as I would under McGrath Brands, but I'm also at McGrath because of their systems are incredible Mm. and their structure's incredible. Mm. And for me to go and create that, it's time, it's a lot of money, and then I'm surrounded by mentors that I do respect in the business and they're there for us at any, you know, I can pick up the phone and ring John McGrath and say, what are your thoughts on this? I can pick up the phone and say, can we do a breakfast next month? I want to invite my clients to a John McGrath breakfast. Mm -hmm. So we've got all that at our, you know, fingertips as well, which is I find incredible and that also helps my brand in my area. When you were talking about John McGrath before, it kind of reminded me of Steve Jobs coming kind of back into (laughs) Apple and, uh, (laughs) you know, reinvigorating uh, a dying Apple but reinvigorating and bringing back what Steve Jobs really represented was yes. innovation and pure customer-centric yes. design. And let's focus about building amazing products. But he really just went back to what he was always doing. That's and is, right. is John McGrath kind of coming back into McGrath and looking at it going, look, I've been doing this long enough. Let's get back to the basics. Let's do what we've always done. Or is John McGrath coming in and saying, look, things have changed and the world of an agent going forward is different to what it's been and we've got to change as a organization to do things differently which route is he taking a bit of both to be honest because we are doing everything he's going back to the basics but he's also going in innovating you know changing our marketing and rebranding everything so which is what he was good at before and he would always rebrand McGrath's you know every when it few years or whenever he feel needed. So he's back doing what he was doing, but also as a company to us agents in this changing market, we've got to change the way we do business. Mm -hmm. So we have John or, you know, Adrian Bow or agents that that are coaching junior agents and and even myself and my staff in how to do business in, in a changing market. What are some of the different ways that you've been coached now than you may have been coached when you first started, for instance? I'm really lucky that at McGrath's that we have a lot of in-house coaching and it's probably one of the reasons that, you know, I'm there as well. And it's also my staff. So me as an agent, to me as running a team is a different mindset. And I I do struggle with that, to be Mm -hmm. honest, because I'm running now a team. I've got two other full-time staff and one casual. So it's a team of four. Mm -hmm. So I'm an agent. I'm to see myself as a business manager and a manager to those staff. It's hard. So, and a lot of agents at McGrath's are growing teams and that's that's how we're doing business at the moment. So we are growing our teams. So McGrath's okay. have, you know, helping us implement systems around that. And we have people that are coming in and working in with our staff in helping that. And that's amazing because that takes that away from me. So we are doing training sessions on prospecting. We're doing training sessions on marketing. We've got people that are, you know, changing our social media marketing and doing a lot of behind scenes stuff to try and attract more buyers to McGraw properties. In terms of actually training though, you know, a lot of this stuff is the back end or the side parts of what you do. I mean, in terms of actually how you deal with buyers and how you deal with vendors. Yes. And how you've done things in the past. Yes. And you're saying that things are changing in the future. What exactly are you doing differently today? And is it a mindset shift as in the way we approach it and the way we think about it is different or we're just trying different approaches? 
both. So mind is a mindset shift and dealing more with my vendors and my buyers and a lot more communication. So the days of just doing callbacks, leaving, you know, 100, you know, 50 messages on a Monday and just forget about them, they won't hear from me for another week or two because I've got 10 buyers. You can't do that. So is that because I'm, the market is shifting or is that because you think longer term that'll get you a better result? Both. Both. I I have um, had Liz and uh, t- two team members for that reason, for both. So for future business and to be able to service my database and my clients and give me, for me personally, to spend more time in doing the, the things that I'm best at doing. So I've done it for both reasons. Um, but in a changing market, we're communicating more with our vendors. We're meeting face to, I am meeting face to face with my vendors pretty much every week. I'm speaking to them every day mm-hmm. because we have to. So when mm. we talk around price point, I'm going to my vendors face-to-face and going, this sold, this mm-hmm. is a square meterage, this is how it compares, this is the aspect. Because vendors get focused on their property and they feel that their property is better than every other property on the market. Well, that's, I mean, a huge bias we all have. I mean, we all overvalue <laughs> things that we own and undervalue things that other people own. And, I mean, that's the one big challenge <laughs> big of real challenge. estate is to – Make sure the vendor be re- is realistic. I mean, I'm very interested. Real estate agents get a bad rep. They're liars. They don't ever tell you the truth, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Never trust a real estate agent. Absolutely. Buyers as well. All buyers are liars. All buyers are liars. That's and a common saying yeah. in, in real estate agencies. Buyers Isn't are it? liars. <laughs> and, you know, and they feel like they've got to play the game because, mm, yep. you know, they're rocking up to this party and this party is where everyone's doing anything they can and what they want and they're just trying their best. They're an elephant. And, <laughs> you know, what's your thoughts on all that? Absolutely. So in two years ago or the last few years, we've had a great market. So buyers had reasons not to trust us agents because we might have been quoting a figure and then it goes for 10, 15, sometimes 20% above that figure. So obviously they're feeling we're lying and a lot of agents wouldn't communicate to the buyers and say, we've had 15 contracts out. Mm. Some agents would say, you've got a chance of buying this. We've only given two out. And then they turn up to the auction and there's 10, 15 registered bidders. So the agents obviously look like they're lying mm, and they right. are lying and that's just to get to buy to the auction. So I think that buyers do have reasons for not liking us and that's something that I do try and focus on is try and be really transparent to my buyers because in times like now in a changing market, the buyers are now in the box seat and we are chasing them and we are calling them and we're communicating with them more than what we ever have. How do you play that from a vendor? So I'm the seller, right? I'm yes. going look, money, love you, really want to sell my property through you. And then you're then saying, well, what's going to sell best is an auction in that market. Yes. And so really how are an auction's momentum? And even or if- helping you identify that one strong buyer, buyer. buyer you know. Absolutely. That, that's really the power of an auction in this market. Definitely, mm. definitely. And so I guess you're trying to, rather than talk, you just really, I mean, at an auction, you just want to get as many buyers there, right? That's correct. And it, that bit of competition, if I'm the one who's always going to buy it, you know, I'm just going to get more excited because <laughs> there's going to be all these other people bidding. I'm going, well, I'm not losing this in front of all these people. I That's mean, right. That's when that, the motion kicks in. <laughs> yeah. How did you, did you, were you being transparent through those years as well? Kind of, or were yes. you just like, look, you know, there's lots of contracts out being quite hazy with it all. No, I'm, I have always been transparent and I think that's where you'll now find good agents or junior agents coming through that haven't been. So how I have done business is how I have always done business. So that's why we do have listings now mm. and we are, have been consistent. I have been consistent for the, for the last five years at McGrath's with the figures that I have written. Um, and I find that's because of the transparency and the communication, the conversation I'm having with buyers. Whereas if I wasn't doing that, I wouldn't have listings today. And they're the agents that don't have listings. So it's more short-term money, you know, it's not long-term future goals and looking at their long-term career in real estate. So, but yeah, it's an, an auction obviously for us in today's market is, you know, two years ago or even six months ago, we would have 10 emotional buyers and the competition would kick in and... You don't have to worry about you it. You don't have to worry. Yeah. It just happens. It just happens. <laughs> so... But now auction is still working in my area. Mm. Uh, it does still create 
a deadline for the buyer to make a decision. Mm. And that's why we are auctioning properties and also find that we are unsure around pricing as well because it is changing. So I'm doing now instead of four-week campaigns or three and a half to four-week campaigns, I'm doing a five-week campaign Mm -hmm. because the first week or two is getting a feel around the price point. So it's important for buyers to ask the agent what week of the campaign are they in? Yeah, because really by week point. three or four or week three, your agent will know exactly where it's at. Mm. And that's the same with the vendor, good or bad. I mean, that's a great question. What I love about that is that our listeners will be property buyers. Yes. And that's a little insight tip for them to go, what week is this, you know, Absolutely. You know, What's another really great question? You, so asking the agent what week they're in, asking yep. the agent if they've had any, had any offers. An agent now is legally, you know, bounded to tell that to buyers. Oh, um, no. See, this is this is still shady. It area, is shady. Isn't it? Because yeah. What's your definition of an offer? In writing, um, on email, and I quite often. So in week one of my campaign, I will say this is what I've guided to the owner. Week two of the campaign is depending on the feedback. Is you know I'm guiding this. However, the owner's at X. So trying to plant pricing in that buyer's head and then from anchoring by the way (laughs) listeners (laughs) and then I need to get feedback from the buyers for both my vendor as well is okay if I mention the x figure that my vendor wants and the buyer showing resistance around that and more than one is then I go to my vendor and go we need to adjust this is where the feedback is around price. So then by week two, I should actually know that as an agent and I should be communicating to my vendor throughout those two weeks to know where they're sitting at as well and if it's overpriced from their end, as in if the vendor's wanting too much. Um, so that's because I'm working on my vendors in those first two weeks as well as the buyers. So then by week three, I should be confidently quoting in a range where my vendor will sell at. Mm. Now, I love hearing you explain that so clearly because that is the way a good agent actually manages this whole process. Yes. And because there is this element of unknown in your vendor's head, the vendor tells you what they want, but then sometimes they're not honest. That's right. Then the buyer tells you what they think they might be prepared to pay, but often they're not honest. And as an agent, you're in this middle ground where you're trying to second guess everyone. So what you're using is specific and, and in fact, using anchoring for both buyer and vendor in order to get everyone in the same headspace. Because at the end of the day, I mean, the vendor wants to sell and the buyer wants to buy. So you, you, right. you've got to get everyone in that, in that somehow in the, swimming in the same pool. So I'll, I like the way you've explained that. Now, one thing that really is a bugbear, not just for me, but for a lot of buyers out there, is this idea of feedback. Yes. You know, it's a word that is used and bandied around <laughs> by agents and it always makes me laugh when someone who's never asked me a question tells me about feedback and I go, this is great. You're giving me feedback from all these other buyers and I'm presuming you've asked them as few questions you've, as you've asked me. me. So where the hell does this feedback come from? Yeah. <laughs> so what? It's your- a feedback that the agent wants to give the buyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. It's, it's, it's absolutely. So funny, it? Yeah. yeah, it is. Misuse of the English language. It is, That's what absolutely. That is. <laughs> I mean, I think let's say that, you know, you're saying it's a changing market. Yes. And there might only be one buyer. Yes. How does that one buyer know whether they're one buyer or – what sort of feedback would you give them to make? Because they need competition to put a good offer in. They do. And throughout the campaign, if they're the only buyer, they they probably won't know that they're the only buyer mm. um, unless they turn up on auction day and they're the only person <laughs> registered. Mm. Now, in that situation, honesty, got one registration, this is the reserve. Mm. Let's just go behind closed door and see if we can close this deal. And that's what I'm doing with a, with a one buyer auction. Mm. How do they um, respond to that? Oh, they, they love it because mm. it's honesty. I'm not having a vendor bid because yeah, why have a vendor well. bid? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> in that situation that when I have done that, they do, they love it. They prefer that. Um, you know, if there's two buyers at an auction and they're both registered, obviously got an auction, but one person may not bid. Um, so it's planning the auction and where you have the vendor bid and you should by then know where your buyers are at so you can't have that too high. And then just, again, honest conversation. And if you've been communicating with both the vendor and the buyer throughout the campaign, you can have that. And we are closing deals. And I think that's what's been my luck, if you say, that, you know, I we, we sold four properties last week and 
it happened because of the communication. And if I weren't communicating with the vendor or the buyers, I wouldn't have closed any of those deals last week. I think that's a really good point as well around the vendor. People want to be sold the dream. And vendors would love for you just to keep telling them what they want to hear. But really, a good agent would be honest with the vendor and say, we've got no buyers. Absolutely. We've got Johnny and Jill and Jack and all these people who are fake, I guess, people. Basically, because it's a risky thing for a vendor to pick an agent. Yes. And then two or three weeks into a campaign, if that agent is saying, look, we've got nothing, we've got one buyer. Is that a real good agent would do that? <laughs> one buyer's oh, great. Oh, God. This is, this, is the, this is where us, it's hard. So you're signing up the listing, you're you know, selling them all your systems it's and you're selling hope. them how good you are mm. and what you can offer and then mid-campaign you, you're going to them with no, no buyers. Yeah. And so for me now, having a crucial conversation with a vendor is when I sign the property up. Mm-hmm. So I am signing properties up. I'm telling them when they're going to expect to hear from me after opens on they're expecting to hear from me Monday night with stats of how many people clicked, how many people have viewed their property on social media, domain.com, realestate.com. Now, if we've had so many hits and nobody turned up to the open, we need to reassess, reassess then your background price and maybe display a price immediately. So I'm telling my vendors what to expect from me throughout the campaign when I'm signing them up. So when I say to them, week two, I'm coming to you and it's going to be great news. We're going to leave it as it is because we've got two or three buyers. That means we've mm-hmm. gone out at a correct price. Or if I'm coming to you week two because we've got nobody turning up to the opens, we're having offers lower than expected, then I'm coming to you to price adjust, to lower the price and display extremely realistic price if you mm-hmm. want to sell. And because I'm having the conversation when I'm signing the properties up, Week two, they're just waiting. Mm. <laughs> they're just waiting for what's happening in my campaign. So when I go to them week three, by week three, we should be okay. Mm. That's why I've extended to five-week campaign. So I've got enough time to readjust their expectations and where the buyers are at to try and close that gap. I love that it's all data-driven there. Oh, I mean, definitely. From a vendor point of mm. view, it's, it's, you know, we're going to let the, the reality, the facts do the talking. I'm a... Uh, and I imagine if you're overselling a property at a listing, it's it's very hard to use the data because, yes. you know, you told me that number. So, you know, now you're telling me that the data is saying differently. But yeah. even then, it's an awkward conversation. I remember that it's when awkward. I was selling. There are times when, you know, you went in and you actually believed that it was worth it would Absolutely. Sell at a price and then you're just finding that for whatever reason that property's got no traction or happens to be in that segment of the market where all of a sudden there's a heap of new properties on the market that are pretty much the same as that one and you're stuck and, and you didn't anticipate that or they waited longer to list than you suggested and then they've gone into spring, for instance, when there's a lot of stock Stop. around. So you've got all of that stuff to deal with. And as an agent, it takes a fair amount of fortitude to be able to have that very uncomfortable conversation, doesn't it? Absolutely. So how much of that is experience? And that's, yeah, that happens a lot. So we were signing up properties in November, December for auctions in February, March, and we're finding the price point around that was, for me, it was a huge gap. So that was really hard conversations going into the new campaigns in February on last year's pricing. Mm. It is really hard. And it's, you've also got to put your hand up and say, you know, I not misguided you, but at that time I did believe it was Mm. worth that. Unfortunately, now this it is what it's worth in today's market because of X, Y, and Z, and you're you're giving them facts. Yeah, but then you tap into what is a belief about agents. That's right. So you're you're then going, I did believe it. You're on the back foot. You're defending yourself. And at the same time, you've got to go out there and deal with buyers and trying to find the buyer and actually get that buyer into the right position to actually buy the property. So. As an agent, you've got an elephant riding, you know, you're riding an elephant at this point because there's a lot of emotion going on within the agent. definitely. And uh, for us, we need to stay ahead of our clients and we need to know what is coming on the market that is identical or similar to the property we're Mm -hmm. selling. And we've got to be on the front foot, know what the agents are guiding, how does it compare to your property that you've got on the market? So then I pick up the phone and ring my vendor and go, did you see what this agent's just listed? They're quoting X, we're quoting Y, this is what we need to do. So if you're on the front foot communicating 
and the vendors aren't ringing you and chasing you, then it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier. But for us, we need to be on that front foot and we need to not be complacent thinking, I've got this listing now. It's going to happen because it's not going to happen. It's got to make, you've got to make it happen. (laughs) And it is a lot of hard work. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Now, please, Marnie, help our listeners out here. Give us an example of a property dumbo. We can all learn what not to do from these stories. So I've recently had a buyer that I was quoting one six to one six fifty, and they're making offers at one four eighty or one four fifty. So there's no need to do that. You know, really in hindsight, she was a one six fifty buyer. So what's she trying to achieve, do you think? That's what to I, I don't I just don't know why they would do that. And we've got comparable sales. So it's like, oh, you know, you don't need to do that. It's that's me, you know, like, yeah. So that's I just find that really frustrating as I mean, if you're in a market and you're trying to buy a rug. Yes. Um, and they're trying to sell it for fourteen fifty. Yes. And you offer a thousand dollars. It's not a bad idea. It's in a bazaar. But yeah. But we're not living in market, yeah, it's in a bazaar. Yeah. <laughs> not I in a shop. Not in a shop. It's not helpful, is it? No, no. It's not helpful. And it doesn't do that by justice either. Like you it gives you give that awkwardness between each other. And it's I just think buyers should be honest and a little bit transparent, more transparent with the agent if they believe that agent is honest and they, they, you know, they can work with that agent to help them buy a property. Therein um, lies the problem, isn't it, that they don't necessarily believe the agent is honest, even if the agent is honest. Yeah, and every that, agent works differently. This is the problem exactly for buyers. Problem. Yeah. Every agent works differently and yeah. every agent doesn't, you know, do what they're supposed to do and don't quote what's on the agency agreement and don't have the – so that's where the frustration lies with the buyers. It's Yeah, yeah I feel for Is them. Is that a big frustration for you that all agents aren't doing the same thing? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. If if all agents, if we had our standard commission, which I'd love to come in <laughs> into place because agents out there are dropping their commission just to get business now, but if it was all industry standard – and we all had rules and regulations, the good agents obviously would be doing, you know, extremely well over yeah. the agents that aren't. It is interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. you say, you know, there's the idea of the competitive, you know, market forces should dictate price. So that's market yes. pricing effectively. By yes. the fact that you can go out there and, and some people can go in at 1% and you're trying to get two or whatever. And I have to say that that could be an entire other topic. Topic, of, of yeah, it could in be. Terms of how agents are remunerated. Back to that thing about how they quote and so certain standards in the industry that would help buyers and are really does bother me that the state government in New South Wales changed the laws as a bit of an election tactic and it sounded to me like it was rushed through and I know there's probably people that will argue it wasn't, but giving agents three alternatives in how they quote I think yes. is not helpful to buyers. I think they should have said you put a figure on an agency agreement, that is what you legally have to put on all marketing. That's right. And if that is immovable, unless there's an offer that's in, in excess of that and that's the only two things that need to happen. That's right. That's right. That should happen because that will eliminate all our problems, you exactly. know. And for me as an agent, some agents will go in, as we say, try and buy the business. So the mm. property might be worth two. They tell them it's worth two and a half. Yep. So if those agents had to quote two and a half, then the, the owners would be coming back to us second time round. But the agent would tell them two and a half and quote 1.9 and if the vendor has to sell, they're selling it two anyway. Mm. So it would actually stop the agents out there doing that as well. So, so I'm going to grab one of those agencies that quote price? Yes. What is on our agency agreement is what we have to quote out there into the market and it's also the background price search on our guides on the internet. And it's the background price search which is really, really important. That is a good point actually. Yeah. There. And mm. if we have to change that mid-campaign, I actually have to get an email from my vendor agreeing and knowing what we have to change. And when we sign up an agency agreement, there's a disclosure page of what we're quoting. So it's crucial conversations with the vendor upon signing the agency and that piece of paper. And that's also so, aligned with legislation. Absolutely. Legislation says you have to do that. But but it is, there is, you know, and I and I went along to the industry, the the roadshows, the REI, yes. roadshows and all the rest of it when they were launching the new laws. And it was really interesting because the questions that were being asked is quite obvious. So many agents just want to find a way to get around it. Yeah. Still. 
still. And so from a buyer's perspective, and maybe this is something we need to do for, you know, the elephant in the room, maybe we need to get little elephant, um, <laughs> little, 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 some sort of accreditation for agents that buyers can trust because the mm. problem is how do buyers work it out? How do buyers work out, okay, I can trust Marnie. What she says is true. So a new buyer coming into the market just says, oh, yeah, Marnie, she sounds good. What she says is right. That's all fabulous. But, you know, she'll probably be just as bad as all the rest of them. You know, it's a very difficult thing for a buyer to do to be able to work out who to trust. You got any tips there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if the buyer starts doing homework and they know an area they want to buy in, start going to open homes. Go to every open home and start to get the know the agents and ask the agents what are the comparable sales? How does it compare? Ask them a list of questions like that and you start getting to know your agents that know know their what they're doing um and also a buyer's agent buyer's agents are great oh thank because you. it takes totally them out that. takes that <laughs> out of the equation and they buyer's agents do know agents that are direct and transparency because they've, they've dealt with them in the past yeah. uh, and i think buyer's agents are you know for for certain people they are the right right answer Oh, I mean, fundamentally, I mean, all my clients do use buyer's agents or they at least sit down with a buyer's agent to figure yes. out if it's the right thing for them. One one of the things I do, which I think is a very, very good tip there for sellers, is before you go and actually try to speak to agents and figure out, you know, who you want to sell your property, don't make the calls, go out into the marketplace and actually figure out what agents are selling and pretend you're a buyer because that experience you're going to get on that property and the way they treat you is probably how they're going to treat your buyers. Absolutely. And how they, you know, approach Spot it on. and how they, and that that experience, you'll pretty quickly go, I don't want to work with Johnny or Jack. I'd much rather work with Jill because I just got an amazing experience. Absolutely. And that is how we treat everyone walking into our open homes because everyone walking in that door would be a potential client in the future. And every owner, you know, you do find a lot of owners do that and they come through and they'll pretend to be a buyer or, you know, just start coming to open homes and they'll see how long it will take to get callback, yeah. a yeah. contract, it's all a very of good that. Test yeah, very good test. When you let an agent know that you are a potential vendor, oh, my God, they're over you like a rash. But when that's you right. just come up as a buyer, then you find out the truth of how they deal with buyers out there. That's very, very... Or a buyer that's got a property to sell. Yeah. Agents will like just... <laughs> Absolutely. You get over and they will, Yeah, and they will be able to leverage off that, which is really, you know, for me, if I'm selling a property to a buyer that's got another property to sell, I don't ask them if I can sell their property before I've sold them a property. Do you know what I mean? I don't do any of those deals. And mm. that the deals, it's it's awful. But if you if that happens, then if that agent's selling your property, they're doing a deal with the next person that comes along. And that's yeah. awful. That's yeah. that's awful. So It's funny uh, how some people, you know, they're okay with one hat on, not okay with another. You know, as yes. a buyer, they're actually totally fine for you to do a deal with me because I've got something to give you. And it's a bit like the whole gazumping thing, isn't that's it? That's right. You know, it's like, well, I'm happy to gazump somebody else, but I'm not happy to be gazumped. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Well, we are in a world of hypocrites, so it's hard to uh, take that too seriously. <laughs> oh, I take it very seriously, Chris. <laughs> uh, Marnie, thank you so much for your time today. It's been very, very insightful. And um, I, I really love how you just really explained your process there. And I think that's, you know, something that a theme we've you know, in a lot of episodes is understanding an agent's process will get you a lot further than just going around and offering 1.4 for a property that you want 1.7 for. Yes. So thank you so much for today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Marnie. I really appreciate your time and your insights are fabulous. So I'm hoping our listeners have learnt heaps from what you've said. Now, Marnie, for listeners who want to get in touch with you, how will they find you? My best is my mobile. Marnie Senior is obviously my name, 0425 um, or on Facebook. I'm obviously Marnie Senior, Senior spelled S-E-I-N-O-R. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Veronica and I want to make you better elephant riders. So this week's elephant rider training is... We're going to talk about the best time to make a pre-auction offer. Now, Marnie touched on this in our conversation, but there is a right time to make an offer prior and a bad time. Now, the first week in an auction campaign is not typically the best time to make an offer. And the reason being that the owner just hasn't really had enough exposure to the market to be inclined to take an offer unless your price is ridiculous. 
So note that if you're going to make an offer in the first week and you really, really, really want to buy this property, you have to pay a ridiculous price at that point. Week two is the best time. Now, and I'll get into that in a minute. Week three, which is the week just prior to the auction, is not a good time. The reason that is not a good time is because any other buyers that are interested in this property have also had the opportunity to do their building and pests and their strata report and get their finance ready and all that sort of stuff. So you run the risk of having more competition from other buyers in the final week. Now, if the agent is encouraging you to make an offer in the final week, then that's a clue. It's a clue that you might be the only buyer or you might be the strongest buyer, in which case you'd be in a better position if you actually wait and go to auction. So the best time if you are going to make a pre-auction offer is the middle week. Now we say the middle week because a campaign typically runs for four weeks. And I say four weeks, you've got first Saturday open house, second Saturday, third Saturday, and the auctions on the fourth Saturday, which means only three weeks really in the campaign. So that middle week is the time when the vendor's more likely to feel that they've had enough exposure to the market to be ready to accept an offer. And it's also before every other buyer gets themselves ready to compete with you. So it's the optimum time to make an offer if you are planning on buying a property prior to auction. So Veronica, What have we got to add to our elephant memory bank this week? Well, another thing that we talked about with money was this idea of whether it's better to buy first or sell first. And she did talk about the answer that she gives people is very much dependent on the market conditions at the time. Now, I've written a couple of blogs on this, so I'm going to put those links in the show notes at theelephantintheroom.com.au so that you can read through and understand the principles that you need to be aware of when deciding whether to buy before you sell or sell before you buy. Come back and join us next week when we interview Tyron Hyde from Washington Brown Quantity Surveyors. Now, I know that sounds a bit boring, but can I tell you, we had such an interesting conversation. We covered so many different topics when it came to investments and investment property decision-making and how investors make crazy decisions for all the wrong reasons. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded and edited by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Me again. We're looking forward to spending more time with you and uncovering what's really going on in the world of real estate. Please subscribe. Be sure to send us a message, leave an iTunes review and tell your friends. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.